0: Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we hear his word this morning. Father, we don't want to leave here with memories of some guy giving a speech. We don't want to just learn facts about what the Bible says. We want an encounter with you. We ask that you would use your word to shape us, fashion us, form us. And we just pause right now for a second to ask you to do that work in us because a pastor can't do it. We can't do it, um, so we surrender this time to you. Help our hearts to be able to embrace your word, yield to it, and would you demonstrate to us from Scripture what our lives are supposed to look like when we leave here? We ask you to do that work in us, in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. I hesitated to use the title that I used for this sermon in the bulletin, because I thought as soon as people walk in and see that the title has the word demon in it, we, we might get some different reactions. Some One reaction might be, this is going to be weird. I don't believe in that stuff. That's weirdo stuff. I don't know any of you personally that would really get excited about it, but I do know per- people personally in my life that would really get excited. All they want to talk about maybe sometimes is demonic activity, things like that. Um, you might even think, Boy, he's really going to go after the Halloween theme because Halloween was last week, and here we go, we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about demons. Uh, We're going to talk about it because it's the next passage on tap in Mark. That's why we're going to talk about it. Um, So that's where we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. If you need a Bible, we have some strapping young lads with the Bibles in the back, the Green Niners will bring them to you. Um, I don't even know what a strapping lad is. (laughs) When I was growing up, strap meant you were strapped, you know? I don't know what that means in Ireland or wherever the phrase comes from. Um, But Mark chapter 1 opens up, and again, Mark has this quick pace. He doesn't waste time. He wants to show you straight out. Jesus comes to preach the gospel. He's baptized, and he's tempted in the wilderness to be that substitute to enact the gospel. Uh, He calls some disciples to himself and says, You're going to help me preach this gospel? And then the first place he goes to do that is the synagogue. Now, uh, we hear about in the Old Testament the, the temple. There was one temple, and that's where you would go for your sacrifices, but there were multiple synagogues, plural. And these were little teaching houses where scribes would come and open up the scrolls and they would explain to you uh, what they thought the Old Testament meant or what their, their teacher taught them that the Old Testament meant. And they'd get there and learn about the Old Testament and learn about covenants and and then they'd leave and probably go have something, something to eat and live their lives. So Jesus goes to the synagogue, and he gets up, and he begins to teach, and something quite radical ensues. So let's pick that up in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. They, Jesus and his disciples, that he just called, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Walks into a synagogue, starts to teach, and a man who's demonized calls out. I know who you are. What are you here for? What's your agenda? Are you here to destroy us? Be quiet. Get out. And everyone's astonished. Now, some of us, we read that passage, and we want to know more of what's going on. I've sat under teaching. I've heard teaching uh, in some churches that I've been to and been exposed to growing up that inject more about demons into the passages in Scripture that we have than we really have. I mean, they've got the ranks figured out. They've got their geography figured out. There's demons in charge of cities, and there's demons in charge of states, and there's demons in charge of, you know, um, it, it, scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail. There's hints and there's little pieces that we try to put together, but more often than not, we get it the way Mark gives it. He assumes you understand that unclean spirits, demons, fallen angels exist. He doesn't give you how that happens, how demonization occurs. Is it physically they're inside of them? Or are they just controlling the mind? He doesn't go into any of that. He doesn't go into how exactly they operate, when and where. Uh, But he just assumes that you understand that there's more than meets the eye when you look around you, that there's something else going on. And the reason why he assumes that is because he assumes, as a Jewish author, a familiarity with some of the Old Testament scriptures. It's definitely assumed in the synagogue, so that if there's an unclean spirit, they're not going, what was that? Well, they know what that was. Because as soon as you start reading the Bible, you see this presence. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Something approaches them, a serpent. Was it really a serpent? What's behind the serpent? What they see is a serpent, but what's behind the serpent? Satan. And so from the very beginning, you see that Satan, and as it unfolds, he has minions, he has fallen angels that are with him under his command, presumably, that do his bidding. And their agenda is to mess up God's creative work that wraps up in the redemption of mankind. They don't make you sin, but they'll do whatever they can to get you to the point where you do it. When God rebukes Adam and Eve, He doesn't go, Oh, sorry guys, the serpent, I know it was all His fault. He rebukes Adam He curses Adam, and he curses Eve because they sinned. They bit the fruit. He didn't make them do it. There's no such thing as the devil made me do it. No, you did it. But nor is it true to say devils don't exist, demons don't exist, there are no spirits. Well, no, biblically, they're there. And they're not there as the scary monster that comes out of the closet. They're not there taking the shape of gargoyles. They're not there to to crawl out from under your bed. They're not there with big horns in an obvious way. They're there in subtle ways. They're there in ways that if Scripture didn't reveal to you that it was behind it, you wouldn't know it was behind it. For instance, when you read the book of Job, it starts out with Satan talking to God, right? Right? And Satan says, Job only worships you because you give him all this stuff. You've given him 10 kids, you've given him families, you've given him grandkids, you've given him money, you've given him fame, you've given him riches, everything. That's the only reason why he worships you. And So God says, okay, take away his stuff, but don't touch him. Lesson number one, Satan is on God's leash and only goes as far as God lets him. Then lesson number two, Satan doesn't show up as a gargoyle. Demons don't show up as, you know, wildebeests. What happens to the kids? How does Satan and his demons destroy Job's family? Natural disasters? Robbers come and maraud the home? Now that would just make the headlines and go, Oop, house got robbed and the robbers killed the family. Oh, house caught fire and it was a fire. The firefighters couldn't put it out in time. We don't see what's behind it. But what scripture reveals is that it could be a demonic force behind it. And when demonic forces work, that's how they work. They work behind the scenes. Now, here you have a guy who maybe has been going to the synagogue for a while. He's got no problem sitting around scripture reading people, he's got no problem going to a place where he knows they're going to read scripture and he knows they're going to talk about scripture. And you've got Pharisees and Sadducees and religious type of people and they're doing religious types of things and this guy that's quote unquote possessed by a demon he's got no problem being there. People don't know he's demonized. It doesn't seem like it. How do they know? Well, it's when he speaks up. Maybe in a grumbly voice. Maybe in a regular voice. I don't know. But it's what he says that reveals that this isn't just A man speaking his thoughts. And when he speaks up, Jesus puts him down immediately. It's not a battle. It's not a fight. It's not an argument. Jesus says, shut up. And that's the last we hear of that guy. And then he says, come out. And he came out. Jesus says, it's like a, a, a game of Simon Says, but Jesus says. And demons do. Complete authority, complete sovereignty. Now, biblically, prior to this, who had that kind of sovereignty? Who gave Satan permission to touch Job? Who gave Satan permission to touch Job's body but not kill him? Who kept uh, Satan from being able to kill Job? God. When you turn to the New Testament, Paul has an ailment. He calls it a thorn in his side. It's a sickness. It's some kind of ailment that he's dealing with. And it's been revealed to him that it's not just any ailment, that there's demonic activity behind it. You remember that passage? And he says, it was a messenger of Satan sent to torment me. Sent by whom? He asked Jesus to remove it, and Jesus said, I'm not going to remove it. I need you to have that thorn, because you're real cocky, dude. You're really arrogant. And if you don't have something hurting you physically, you're going to get overconfident in your ability You're not going to learn weakness. And if you don't learn weakness, you won't lean on my strength. So I need that there. All right, okay, so who sent it then? Who wants that messenger of Satan tormenting Paul? God. So biblically, we understand God has supreme authority over these beings. And Jesus walks in and reveals, I ain't just a dude. I tell demons to shut up, and they shut up. I tell them where to go, and they go. And so... He walks into the synagogue, rebukes the spirit, be silent, come out of him. The unclean spirit doesn't go out liking it, convulses the body, and carrying with a loud voice, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. They were all astonished. They marveled. They said, "What is this? A new teaching with authority? A new teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. So they see that there's something about authority with this man, Jesus. He has authority. See that in verse 21. Or not in verse 21. We see that in verse uh, 27. This exclamation that he doesn't teach normally teaches with authority. 22 is the other one I was thinking of. He taught them. And how did he teach them? He taught them as one that had authority. He's not there to quote other scribes. He's not there to quote other rabbis. He's there saying, this is the truth about Scripture. This is what Scripture really means. This is what Scripture really says. And that wasn't comfortable for the demons. You could talk about Scripture all day. You can quote Scripture all day. Is it authoritative? The way Jesus did it was, so we have this scene, we have this episode, and it ends with this real curious uh, moment where Jesus rebukes him, not just telling him to come out, come out of him, seems like that would be enough, just get out and go away, but he tells him to shut up first, be quiet, what is he silencing? Well, the demon, what was the demon saying? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? In other words, I know your mission. I know your real mission. Your real mission isn't to walk around and preach sermons in synagogues. You have a greater, grander mission than that. Is now the time that you're going to do that? Then what else does he say? He says, I know who you are. These people don't. They're still trying to figure out, how did, he, how did he just teach like that? What kind of, what is it? I can't put my finger on it. It's, a, it's authoritative, but I can't, what, what is this? Well, who are we dealing with here? He knows who we're dealing with. The demon knows. The people don't. You're the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows he's the God-man promised in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the serpent. He knows it. But as he's explaining it, Jesus doesn't go, listen to him. Do you hear that? The Holy One of God, people. He's like, shh. Be quiet. That's kind of weird. It's weird because he does it again in the next couple of verses. We're going to move forward. We'll put a hook on that, put that on a hook. Verse 29, what happens next? Immediately he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. So this is a more personal setting. He's with his disciples. But Simon's mother-in-law is there, and she's sick. She has a fever. It says, verse 30, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Obviously, it wasn't like, hey, but by the way, if you hear someone coughing, that's just, that's just my mom-in-law you know, up in the room. They're like, hey, if you could heal a guy that's demonized, what can you do with a fever maybe, perhaps? So, verse 31, he, Jesus, came, took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. It's like, life just went back to normal. She's like, oh, let me fix you some tea. You know? <laughs> she's just back to normal. Didn't take a long time of recovery. You know, she just went straight into the kitchen and, and started boiling noodles or whatever for her, for her guests. They're her guests in her home. Plus, she's thankful, obviously, for this lifted fever. Now, one thing we'll notice there is that it doesn't say anything about demons. So while I was you know, explaining to you that sometimes a demon could be behind a sickness, a demon could be behind a disease, a demon could be behind a crime, a robbery, a murder, a natural disaster, a hurricane, a flood, a storm, we see these in Scripture. And Scripture reveals to us that a demon is behind it. We don't know. We don't wear those lenses. We can't see when it is and when it is not. But some churches will have you believe that it's always that. So you walk around and you rebuke storms and you rebuke burglars and rebuke barking dogs. Everything's demonic, but that's not quite what Scripture is saying either. It just says she had a fever. We know what fevers are like, and Jesus held her hand and picked her up, and she didn't have a fever. And so what Mark is saying is not every time you have a disease you have a demon behind it. What Mark is saying is whether it's a disease or a demon. Jesus has authority over it. He can rebuke a disease as well as he can rebuke a demon because he's authoritative. He's not just a preacher. It's not just his message that makes him powerful. It's who he is. And it says, That evening, verse 32, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. You see that? Not all who were sick by being oppressed by demons. All who were either sick or oppressed by demons. Either or. Verse 33, And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Again, there's a separation there. Sometimes it might be demonic. It's not always necessarily demonic. And so as he's, he rebukes the unclean spirit in the synagogue, that same day goes to Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law of a fever, and by the time the day is over, Everyone from the city is crowding the house, crowding Jesus, bringing their sick people to him. Now, wouldn't that happen today? I mean, if you if you did a Facebook Live of that uh, Jesus was here and you Facebook live it and he heals them, people will be coming to your door with their cancer-ridden family members, with their, you know, people stuck in wheelchairs, all kinds of just, how about this? How about paralysis? Can you do that? You know? And, and Jesus wasn't like, no, 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 I'm tired now. He's, he's healing, he's healing, he's touching, he's rebuking, whatever it took, or whatever was necessary. But then that curious line again, look at the last line of verse 34. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Why? To just flex his ownership over them? No. Because they knew him. Shh. Jesus was not on the scene like, hey, I'm the Messiah. You know, I'm the Holy One of God. No. Next week, we'll look at a healing session when he heals the guy. And before he lets him go, he goes, wait, before you leave, don't tell anyone. What is going on? Jesus doesn't want to shout from the rooftops who he really is. But the demons know who he really is. And everyone else around them is confused. They just see healer, wonder worker, miracle man. We can start a website. Jesusheels.com They didn't have websites back then. You know what I mean. They just wanted to make a televangelist out of him before there were televangelists. They wanted to put him up on a hill and have everyone come around. And who knows, maybe Judas, if he's around yet, he's already thinking of what they can charge. You know, Peter's already putting together a security team and he's got a sword and he's looking at people's ears and he's ready to lop stuff off because we're going to turn this into a ministry where there's a whole entourage and it's a, it's a big money thing and this is going to be awesome That's what they're thinking. How do I know that's what they're thinking? Look at the next paragraph. This will be the last chunk that we look at this morning. Rising very early in the morning, after presumably a long day of healing, healing people, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon, desolate doesn't mean the desert. It just means a place where he's alone and there's nobody crowding him. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. That sounds a little annoyed, right? Oh, here he is. Hey, man, I found him. He's in this closet. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. We got the entourage ready, the security is ready. We sharpened the swords, we've got money bags, we figured out a system to get them through quicker. And when you look at that passage, when I was studying this, the word looking for is one word in the Greek, and it appears 10 times in the Gospel of Mark. And every single time looking for appears in the Gospel of Mark, it's negative. It's never Oh, well, I was looking for you, I wanted to give you something. Oh, I was looking for you. Just wanted to say thank you. It's always like, I was looking for you. Where have you been? I need this from you. That kind of thing. Every single time it appears in Mark. And that's what's happening here. What do they want from Jesus? Oh, we were looking for you. We just wanted to sit under your teaching one more time. Oh, we were looking for you. Just wanted to make sure you weren't too exhausted from last night. Here's some bread. I was, we were looking for you. There's other people that need to be healed. Let's go. That's what they want. They're not looking for Him to follow Him. They're looking for Him to use Him and to witness more miracles, more wonders of this healing ministry. Jesus doesn't want to play that game. He tells them, verse 38, that's not what I'm here for. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. But, but, there's, but there's still demons and diseases in Capernaum. We're not done with Capernaum yet. They might think of family members and people with actual names, actual diseases. They didn't get a chance to get healed last night. Maybe they stood in line, but it was just too late and Jesus needs to get a couple hours of sleep. And then he sneaks out the back door while it's still dark so he can just have a moment of silence to pray. Then they finally find him. People are waiting. People are frustrated. And he's just going to leave. Why? Because he's not here to heal everybody. He's not here to just look at crowds and make everybody feel more physically comfortable. That's not his mission. He'll do some of that. He's already done some of that. But why is he ready to move on to the next town? Because the next town has something that this town hasn't had yet. And it's not just healing. He's going to do that. He's going to cast out demons. But what is his mission? How is he refocusing the disciples? Basically telling them, stop looking at me as a healing man. I want you to look at me as what? A preaching man. He says, let us go to the next towns, verse 38. Why? That I may preach there also. That is why I came out. He makes it clear, my mission, sure I'll heal, sure if somebody's disease comes to me, I'll heal, but that's not, I'm not, it's not a healing ministry, this is a preaching ministry. Demons will get cast out along the way, people might get healed along the way, but my mission is not those things, my mission is to preach. So what does he do in verse 39? He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And I don't think that those two things were separable. Preaching in the synagogues, and then if he had time, he also did something completely unrelated in casting out demons. I don't think that's what Mark is after. I think what Mark is after is for you to see that the two things are related. That how were demons cast out? It's preaching ministry. That's how. Now, it's not just any old preaching ministry. It's Jesus' preaching ministry, but Mark is trying to show you That the preaching of Jesus and the casting out of demons are connected. They're wed together. If you back up to the beginning of where we started, verse 21, you'll see it clearly there too. He goes into Capernaum. He goes on the Sabbath into the synagogue. And what does he do? He's teaching. What kind of teaching? It's a different kind of teaching. It's an authoritative teaching. Now, in the ministry, this is how we differentiate teaching from preaching. What is the difference between teaching and preaching? The difference between teaching and preaching is a teacher stands up and shows you a bunch of facts and says, this is what's factually true. A preacher says, here's what's factually true from Scripture. Go do it. Go be it. Go live it. The preacher is pressing these truths into your life, not just interpreting it so we, oh, I learned a new Greek word today. Who cares about the Greek if it doesn't change your life? So Jesus, they see him teaching, and they're trying to figure this out. Why is it that he's teaching with authority? In verse 22, they're astonished. They're not just like, hmm, hmm, interesting. Well, I guess I'll come back next week. They're out of their minds with this. They've never seen it. And that is what creates the situation with the demoniac yelling out, saying, are you here to destroy us? How does Jesus destroy With his teaching, with his preaching. And what is he preaching? The whole rest of chapter 1 has been trying to tell us what he's teaching. What is Jesus preaching? Pop quiz. What is he preaching? I'm looking for one word. Salvation. Salvation, More specifically using a word that Mark uses about salvation. Gospel. Right? It starts out in verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything is about the gospel. Everything I'm about to give you in the book of Mark is about the gospel. I'm going to explain it to you. Here's how it happens. Jesus had to be the substitute to to do something for us that we can't do. So he was baptized on our behalf. He endured temptation on our behalf. We fall into temptation. He didn't fall. So he becomes the substitute so that the gospel can happen. Now he starts preaching the gospel in verse uh, 14. John is arrested. Jesus comes into the Galilee. He's proclaiming the gospel. Then he recruits gospel preachers in verses 16 and following. You're not going to fish for fish anymore. Now you're going to fish for people. Well, how are we going to fish for people? Preaching the gospel. The same thing that Jesus was doing. He's not giving them a separate mission. He's inviting them into his mission. He, we're going to preach the gospel. Then in verse 21 he goes to a synagogue to do it. And he proclaims the gospel from Scripture. Now when you fast forward to the New Testament, to other books in the New Testament like Romans 16:25. Paul says that this gospel was a mystery before, but now it's not a mystery anymore. He doesn't mean mystery like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. He means something that wasn't fully understood before and now is completely understood, meaning the gospel. So why would Paul say the gospel was mystery before and now that Jesus has come and enacted it and preached it, it's not mystery anymore? Well, because they were trying to put the pieces together in the Old Testament, and that's what Jesus is doing in the synagogue. He's revealing what was mystery to them before, and now he's giving it to them with authority. He's not getting it from some other rabbi. All these guys would do is quote other guys. He's, he's quoting himself. I'm God. And he's quoting, uh, he's using Scripture like it's his own word and proclaiming to them the truths about the gospel. That's what his mission was in verse 14. That's what his mission is when he tells the guys, hey, we've got to go to another town. Verse 38 and following. Because i got to preach there. How do the two connect? When you watch movies, and the movie is trying to demonstrate that there's demonic activity. We don't see this in Scripture, but chairs are moving, you know, the chandeliers are swinging. It's a demonized house. Some guy killed his family, and now it's haunted. Who cares? Whatever. Whatever the background is, there's some demonic activity. Or someone is Possessed. It's a child, it's a woman, and it, who cares? It's some, something there. How do they counteract that? It's usually some dopey priest that comes in with crucifixes, flicks water on people. Now, if you go back to Scripture and you see what the authors of Scripture are trying to tell you about this opposition of evil, that it's real, and what can the church possibly do about this opposition of evil? Sprinkling water? Crucifix? Easy to, easy to pick on like a Catholic church, right? How about Scripture memorization? How about spout Scripture back at them? They'll leave. What, are, what were they doing in the synagogue? Reading Scripture. The scribes know Scripture. They, they were experts in it. They knew the language. They knew the grammar, the syntax. They knew the context. They knew all the cross-references. No power. A demoniac can sit there in the front row and be cool with it. Is knowing Scripture enough? See, there's a difference between the facts about the gospel and the impact of the gospel itself. Historical facts, that's not the truth that sets anyone free. (laughs) In in John chapter 8, Jesus said, When you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What truth? Two plus two equals four. That's truth, ain't it? Why isn't that a powerful, authoritative truth? During when, when, when America, when the United States entered into the, into the First World War, the president of the United States at that time was Woodrow Wilson. Is that true? Yeah. Does that have any effect on anybody? No. How about... In the book of Judges, we have one verse about Shamgar, who delivered Israel with an ox goad. Is that true? Yeah. Is that scriptural truth? Yeah, it's scriptural truth. Is there power in just saying it? No. No. If you don't understand what's going on in the book of Judges, you don't understand why Shamgar is there, why Samson is there, why Deborah and Barak are there to show you that Israel would try to be righteous and they couldn't and they would always go to idols and they would always go to other people and God would have to raise up a judge to do something miraculous like kill people with an ox goat or slay people with a jawbone to deliver Israel. But those judges would die and Israel would stray again And another judge would have to be raised up because Israel can't do it. A judge has to deliver them. But those judges keep dying. Can we get a judge that doesn't die? Can we get a judge that doesn't struggle with lack of faith, Gideon? Can we get a judge that's not arrogant, Samson? Can we get a judge that doesn't need people next to him to urge him to keep going? Otherwise he'll just be lazy, Barak? Yeah, his name is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus will ultimately deliver us from this cycle of rebellion and we'll never be delivered from this cycle of, God, okay, I'll try, and then I fail. Okay, God, for real this time, and then I fail. That's what the book of Judges is about. And the author of Judges keeps giving you hints. They had no king, so they did what was right in their own eyes. They had no king, so they did what was right in their own eyes. Hey, guys, they had no king, and so they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Okay, we don't need a judge, we need a king, and we need a king that's established forever forever. Keep reading, keep reading. That's going to be in the line of David. The dynasty of David is going to be established forever because one is going to come that fulfills Genesis 3.15, fulfills Judges, fulfills 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, fulfills all the prophets, and sits on the throne and rules. That's Jesus Christ. So scriptural truth detached from the gospel. Is there power in that? Is there power in debating about who wrote Ecclesiastes? Or is it getting to the point of the book of Ecclesiastes? Your life will be completely meaningless and depressing if you don't understand its purpose. If you detach your purpose from the gospel, you have no purpose. So what we see here is the reality of demonic opposition, and you're not going to see it. Well, most of us are not going to see it. We're not going to see you know, somebody foaming at the mouth, levitating. You know, we're, we're not going to see gargoyles. There's just opposition. You know, sometimes if a church experiences difficulty or there's a rampant disease in the church or people are hurting or there's job loss and, you know, sometimes natural disaster, who knows? Maybe there's demonic activity behind it. What, is the, what does Mark want us to walk away with? What you need to do is walk around and start rebuking demons, rebuke the demon of the region, rebuke the demon of your city, rebuke the Illinois demon. No. Recognize who Jesus is, the demons do. And recognize what Jesus was doing, the demons did. Are you here to destroy us? How? The preaching of the gospel. That's how. We have a penchant to focus on churchy things that aren't Jesus things. And some churches, it might be demons and demonic activity. other churches, it might be more like what the disciples were after, which was the healing stuff or what we can get out of Jesus. Does Jesus want us to suffer physically? He may not. He may, like with Paul, but he may not. But if our focus is what we can get from Jesus and not the rescue that Jesus actually has in store for us in the gospel, then we don't get it. And we cannot live, in oppos- we cannot live surrounded by the demonic opposition know, helping us with our own inward opposition of this penchant to fail, we can't do anything about that apart from the gospel. If we come to church because we want something out of church, there's something comfortable we get out of church, it's not that those are bad things, it's that those are not the main thing. If those other things that are nice things about God, the blessings that you get from being a Christian, become the main thing, then you lose the gospel. So, I don't know what those things might be in your life. I don't know if some of us, maybe sometimes we read Scripture because we think if I just read a Bible verse a day, then the demons will go away. I don't know. You know, If I just spend a couple minutes in the Word, then my life will be better. If I put some money in the basket, then God will put more money in my basket. Yay! Okay, my marriage is a little rough right now. I don't like a rough marriage. I would like a more peace in our home because it just is driving me crazy. Maybe I'll just show up at church a little more. Wait for God to fix the marriage. Does God want to fix marriages? Yes. Does he want to help you with your parenting? Yes. The word is profitable for that. But if we take the gospel out and we just are around the peripheral edges, just trying to grasp at blessings, but without really understanding the power of the gospel, we lose it. So what do we do about demonic activity? we try to chase them down, try to discover them? Do we try to find it behind every tree, behind every disease? No. Mark doesn't even focus on it. We read through the gospel, the only time demons come up is in, is in how they interact with, with Jesus and his disciples. He's, Mark is not trying to get you to focus on demons or demon activity or try to figure out when and where and how and who. No, focus on the gospel, the preaching of The gospel of Jesus Christ. I've said gospel like 32 times or something like that in this sermon. And before we wrap up, I just want to remind us what the gospel is. The gospel means good news. It's the Greek word for good news. What is the good news? The good news starts with bad news, which starts with good news. It goes like this. God created you to worship him. Opening pages of Genesis, right? A lot of the Psalms, he knits you together in your mother's womb. You're wonderfully and beautifully made because you're made to be a worshiper that reflects him. You're made in his image. You're supposed to reflect his image back to himself and bring glory to him. That's our purpose. That's a good thing. But in Adam, we all sinned, and so we're born broken, and then we choose to sin. And we enter this cycle of rebellion and failure and lostness and waywardness that we cannot get ourselves out of. And in fact, if we were quite honest with ourselves, we enjoy the addiction. We enjoy the cycle. And there's moments where we're rock bottom and we don't enjoy it, but we go back to it because we can't help it. We're slaves to sin. Jesus came to live the life, total resistant to temptations, even though he felt the pull of it, totally resistant to temptation, to live the life that we couldn't live. And then he dies the death that we were supposed to die because the wage of sin is death. And then he rose from the dead because if he stayed dead, he can't bring us out of the cycle. He rises again to bring us, resurrect us, transform our hearts from stony hearts to fleshy hearts that can absorb the gospel, embrace it, and become followers of Jesus Christ, come out of that cycle, and become servants of God instead of slaves to sin. And then that's something we respond to in faith. Do you believe it as a fact? The demons believe it as facts. Can we talk about it as factual? We can talk about it as factual. But do you trust it? Do you, do, you, do you embrace it with your heart and say, okay, I believe that. I have faith in that. That's where the power of the gospel comes in. We don't have to put crucifixes up all over the house, hang garlic in the doorways. Be a gospel person. And the demons cannot handle that. I want to ask the worship team to come forward. And as we close in this song, my prayer is that our hearts would be aligned with God's mission through Jesus Christ, which is the gospel and not something else. So let's stand together and...